Would you please join me in prayer? Lord, we pray alongside of the writer of Psalm 92 that it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name. And Lord, we have gathered here this morning in order to respond to your goodness, to respond to your character, to respond to who you are, to give you worship, to sing praises to you, to hear your word, to respond in faithful obedience to it. For you, Lord, have made us glad by your work. You, Lord, have made us feel joy at the works of your hands. We would be the first to declare your steadfast love has been upon us, as you have given up your only son, Jesus, to be the perfect propitiation for us, to stand in our place, to receive the punishment that we deserved so that we might be in fellowship with you, standing in his righteousness. And so, Lord, we recognize that, that you have done something special inside of us. Your thoughts, Lord, are very deep. And, Lord, we thank you that you have revealed those to us. You have not left us as your people in the dark. And, Lord, it doesn't matter how many people claim in this world that, that you do not exist. Those opinions, Lord, are not determined by the sheer number of opinions, nor by those who succeed and have success, even though they do not acknowledge you. But it is in your word alone, in what you proclaim to us, our trust is in that. So, Lord, we pray that as we hear your word this morning, that you would allow us to respond once again, to hear afresh the gospel, to love you more, to cherish you more, to understand who we are in relationship to you and the great beauty of what you have done to draw us near. We pray this all in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. We are in the final part of our study of Matthew. And if you look at your outline within your worship guide, you can see what I mean when I say the final part. The Gospel of Matthew is divided into seven sections. We began our study with the prologue, which introduced us to the Lord Jesus and his forerunner, John the Baptist. This was followed by five sections that reveal the nature, the character, the works, and the teachings of the Lord Jesus. And as you can see, each one builds upon the other, where we see Jesus informing his people about his kingdom and that there will be a clear dividing line between those who are citizens of it and those who are not. Each of the five sections follows a pattern of two parts. And within these first parts, Matthew provides us with a narrative of what Jesus did. And then in the second part of the section, Matthew records our Lord's extended teachings. We just finished the last of these when we concluded the Olivet Discourse in the previous sermon. And now we are nearing the finish line. And what a glorious prize awaits us as we delve into the passion and resurrection of Jesus. This is the event that Matthew has been steering his readers towards. It is the event that changed all of human history. What you believe about the passion and resurrection creates a clear demarcation between those who are in the kingdom of heaven and those who are not. It gave Jesus, the Son of Man, every right to claim kingship over all the universe. And let me just say that Jesus is the king over all. He rules over everything. 
It is now a question of whether or not one recognizes his authority to do so, or are they in rebellion to it? And when we consider these next two chapters that describe the passion of the Lord Jesus, it makes you wonder why anyone would refuse to acknowledge Jesus as king and embrace him as savior. It should make us stand in awe, not only in the power of sin to deceive us so easily and and prevent us from coming to the Lord, but also in what Jesus overcame in order to free us from the shackles of sin. Folks, if we approach these last three chapters with the right attitude, they have the potential to change us forever. They will grant us encouragement to persevere. They will cultivate love instead of hatred inside of our hearts. They will be a balm to our aching souls. They will give us bright hope for tomorrow as we endure this world today. But while some of the events we will study should greatly disturb us, greatly disturb us as we contemplate the, the sufferings of the Christ, they should also make us cry out hallelujah and hosanna to the King of kings, to the great God who condescends to save and to love his creation. Chapters 26 and 27 describe what we call the passion of the Christ. Theologians call it this because passion comes from the Latin word passion, which means suffering. And these next two chapters portray the treachery, the betrayal, the arrest, trial, torture, and execution of the Lord Jesus. Make no mistake about it, Jesus was arrested unjustly and treated as a criminal, though he committed no sin. It is horrifying to read about. But every Christian must acknowledge what Jesus did in his sufferings if we are to know the power of his resurrection. As I mentioned before, the passion and resurrection of Jesus will draw a line between those who are citizens of the kingdom and those who are not. And that becomes evident even in these first few verses of Matthew 26. In verses 1 through 16, we see this contrast of character between those who are devoted and truly committed and those who are not, between those who are in the kingdom and those on the outside. And as we work our way through this, you might become surprised at the benefits and the insights that some of these people had, yet still rejected the Lord Jesus. They knew that Jesus came for their good, and they still plotted against him. So this morning, we're going to consider the example of our Lord, the example of the religious establishment, the example of Mary of Bethany, and the example of Judas, one of the twelve. And at the conclusion, we're going to carefully think through the application of what these figures portray. Each instance should be life-changing. So our outline today is Jesus, religious leaders, Mary and Judas, followed by applications. Now, if you haven't already done so, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. This is found on page 831 of your pew Bible. Now, when we read the scriptures, it would be wrong of us to do so by focusing on mere men and women. The the Bible was given in order to reveal God to us. He is the author, and he is the subject of this glorious book. And while he wants to teach us something about ourselves, the Lord wants us to see ourselves in relationship to who he is. 
I confess, I, I struggle through sermons that focus on the examples of characters in the Bible, like the leadership lessons of David or Nehemiah, the marriage principles of Priscilla and Aquila, or the courage of Jael, or the financial wisdom of Solomon, and so on. I have a friend that refers to this as reading your Bible upside down. The Bible was written to emphasize God, not mankind. And it benefits us because it reveals a holy God and how he responds to his creation. But it is not primarily a book about individual characters in the Bible, unless we're talking about Jesus. So when we get into these examples, there may be qualities that these individuals display that we should emulate. But ultimately, we should view them in relationship to God himself. We should consider their reaction to God's revelation. And you cannot have a higher example than the Lord Jesus. He is not only God, but he is also the perfect man. And as such, he sets the perfect example for us to follow. He should be our guide. The first two verses of chapter 26 are transitory in this story. They conclude the Olivet Discourse found in chapters 24 and 25, and they also launch us into the next events in chapters 26 and 27 that describe what, what the Lord's previous message was about. Verse 2, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now pause and consider those words for just a moment. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus knew precisely what was coming. He was going to face excruciating pain. He knew he would be executed. He had been predicting this already throughout Matthew's gospel, particularly in chapter 16, verse 21, chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, and chapter 20, verse 18 and 19. The detail in those predictions is amazing. Jesus knew he would be tried by the chief priest, condemned, given over to the Roman Gentiles, flogged, and then crucified. And yet he pursues his course knowing that this is what awaits him. Why? Why is he willing to do this? Well, here's why. First and foremost, in order to do the will of his Father. In order to do the will of his Father, Jesus states explicitly in John 6, 38, that he has come to do the will of his Father. There he said, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. A little earlier in the same book in John 4, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The Old Testament foretold that the Messiah would come in order to redeem the Lord's people from their sins. We read earlier, Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, meaning God the Father, has put him to grief, and when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Just two verses later in Isaiah, he reveals he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the beauty of Jesus doing the will of the Father. The Father desires to rescue a people from the earth for his own glory. He wants to save them from their rebellious sin that brings punishment from a holy God. So instead, Jesus perfectly performs the will of the Father. 
He becomes the perfect, willing sacrifice in our place. The Father punishes him in our stead. The penalty for justice is met, and God maintains his standard of holiness while saving his elect. Therefore, those who believe in Jesus become the beneficiaries of the Father's love. As Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Jesus becomes the ultimate example of what we taught earlier in this gospel. Remember back in Matthew 22, Jesus was asked, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. By Jesus loving the Father first and foremost, he was also loving us. And the same is true for us. If you love God, you cannot help but love his body, the church. And if you love his church, you cannot help but love the Lord more. As we learned last week, whatever you have done unto the least of these, my brothers, you have also done it unto me. If you find yourself in a spiritual malaise, having a little pity party for yourself, then throw yourself into loving the local church and you will find yourself loving Christ more. If you read the New Testament epistles, you will see this imperative to love the church over and over and over again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all of his saints. But consider first the singular devotion of Jesus here to do the will of his Father, to to march into the jaws of death, entrusting himself completely to the Father, that the penalty of sin would be paid in full, but that he would also be resurrected from the dead. Jesus followed, even though not everyone would appreciate the gift he was giving them. In verses 1 through 2, this picture of Jesus tenderly explaining to his disciple what he was about to do while sitting on the Mount of Olives stands in sharp contrast with the next scene. It shifts from the pastoral heights to the palace of the chief priest. Verse 3, Then the chief priest and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, by using these terms chief priest, along with the elders here, we know that Matthew is referring to the majority of the Sanhedrin, the civic governing body of the Jews. Now, we've talked about this before, but let me just remind you that that the Romans granted the Hebrews a special dispensation to govern themselves, since Jewish civil law was so entangled with their religious law. They found it the easiest way to keep the peace. Romans did maintain three privileges. First, the person chosen to fulfill the office of chief priest must be approved by them. Second, the Jews must pay their taxes to Rome. And third, only the Roman prefect could execute capital punishment. And by holding on to these three powers, the Romans could exercise control over Judea in a highly efficient way. At this time, there were two chief priests in Jerusalem. Caiaphas, who's mentioned here, held the official title. He obtained it when his 
father-in-law, Annas, lost the favor of the Roman government. So Caiaphas served in the office of high priest, but Annas was probably also recognized as the true high priest by the people, since according to Jewish law, he was supposed to hold the title until his death. It seems that both Caiaphas and his father-in-law were of one mind, regardless of who held the power. And we see from these verses that at the same time Jesus was willing to go to his death to redeem his people, Caiaphas and his cronies were plotting the death of Jesus. We're told they're seeking to arrest him and kill him. There's no mention of a fair trial in between. They'd already pronounced judgment on Jesus. And they wanted to do this secretly because they feared an uproar by the people, not because they feared God. We're told a little more about this plot in John chapter 11. Remarkably, Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for the people. He had that insight. Let me read that passage to you. This is John 11, verses 49 through 53. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And here's what John reveals about this. Verse 51, He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. John seems to indicate that Caiaphas received his prophecy supernaturally. He had insight, but he completely misinterpreted it. Nevertheless, we can see the contrast. Jesus was totally devoted to the Father, seeking to obey his will, doing every deed publicly and telling his disciples what would happen. The religious establishment was looking for ways to circumvent God's law, hiding their intentions behind closed doors, willing to commit murder in order to keep themselves in power. The next scene is another picture of devotion. Jesus is unexpectedly anointed with oil by a woman. It is a lavish display of affection towards the Lord. Now, before I proceed any further, I need to kind of clear up a case of mistaken identity here. Now, most scholars believe this type of anointing happened to Jesus twice, not once. Luke records a similar event in chapter 7 of his gospel. And this is commonly thought to be the same story because A, a woman anoints Jesus with perfume, and B, the house they were in was owned by a man named Simon. Now, Simon was a very common name during this time period, especially among the Jews. In fact, Jesus had two of them among his 12 disciples, two Jameses as well. But there are key differences between the stories. Simon in Luke 7 was a Pharisee. Here in Matthew 26, he is known as a leper. And the term leper meant more than just leprosy. It could refer to any type of skin disease. The event in Luke 7 happens early in Jesus' ministry while he's further north in Galilee. In Matthew chapter 26, this occurs in Bethany of Judea on the week before Jesus dies. And the offense of the witnesses are different as well. Here, the concern is over the cost of the perfume. If you look back in Luke 7, it's over the character of the woman who anoints him. 
the fact that she was a known sinner, a euphemism for a loose woman. So it's two different occurrences, which I think provides greater meaning to this event described in Matthew 26. John 12 tells us that this was done by Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And while Jesus was reclining at dinner in front of everyone, she pours out her most expensive perfume. It must have been an extravagant gift indeed because everyone is indignant at what they considered to be a waste. It could have been sold for a large sum of money, according to verse 9, and given to help the poor. Now, before we get into Jesus' commendation, let's think upon why she did this. Perhaps, and here I'm only speculating, Mary heard of the prostitute that did this earlier in Jesus' ministry, and she wanted to follow her example in devotion to Jesus. What a thought! that Mary would follow the lead of a woman who had a poor reputation, that Mary wanted to emulate this act of worship. Now, it's clear that Mary loved Jesus. She loved to sit at his feet. She had witnessed him raising her brother from the dead. And as a woman, this was the highest display of praise that she could give him. Take what she had probably spent lavishly upon herself and pour it on Jesus as an act of worship. If only more of us would do the same. Here, Lord, take my boat, take my jewelry, my bank account, my children, my reputation. I give it all to you, for you are worthy. This act of love is not immediately recognized, but, but Jesus, as he so often does, intercedes, and he says, verse 10, why do you trouble the woman? And look what he says. For what she has done, or for she has done, a beautiful thing to me. Jesus considers what she did to him as beautiful. Not just extravagant, beautiful. I had the privilege of, of leading a young lady to the Lord. And when Jesus broke through... She had such an eruption of emotions. She, she just could not stop crying tears of joy. It, it was a cathartic outburst. She had been carrying around the weight of her sin, and it was like a dam had been holding back years of guilt, and it just broke forth, and she finally could release the weight of her sin, and it, she just started weeping and weeping and weeping. And wiping the snot from her nose, she told me, I am such a mess right now. I wanted to tell her that with her tears for Christ, she had never looked more beautiful in that moment. Christ declares such extravagant acts as beautiful. And he says, why? Verse 11, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And once again, he anticipates his death. He alludes that Mary was doing this under a supernatural influence for a purpose. Verse 12, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now think about it. What are we doing today? We are recalling the memory of what this woman did for the Lord Jesus. 
we are fulfilling this promise just as it has been done throughout the centuries. Folks, Jesus always keeps his promises. Always. So when he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, he means it. When he promised, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hands, it is true. And this day, to you, my friend, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He has never lied because he cannot lie. And in response, Mary offers all that is most valuable to her. Now, I need to pause for just a moment, and I need to point out something that's vastly important. Note that Jesus values this act of worship from this woman. He values womanhood. He values the distinctions between gender. And while there is an emphasis among us in the evangelical church for men to, to step up and do their part, Jesus does not negate the value of the worship of women. This act was not second best to Jesus. It was beautiful. In fact, read throughout the Gospels and you will see Jesus' great love for women and that he values every single one. I say this because if you're a man that smugly looks down on a woman as though somehow she's beneath you in some way, then shame on you. You should know better from the example of our Lord. Christian women are co-heirs with us in Christ. In fact, if anything, from my reading of the New Testament, we men should do whatever we can to outserve the ladies in the church, not somehow look at them as though they are primarily here to serve us. All the men sitting with Jesus at the table in Bethany, especially his disciples, heard Jesus say what he was about to endure, and none of them, none of them responded with worship. In fact, later that night, it will be Jesus that gets down on his hands and knees to serve them by washing their feet. I want to say, man, what, what a bunch of self-absorbed jerks until I realize I'm just like them all the time. And then we're told one final example. Someone who definitely thought of himself more highly than Jesus, Judas. A man who had been following Jesus at least since Matthew chapter 10 one whom Jesus had handpicked to be his disciple. He had followed Jesus throughout Galilee, Gisenaret, and Samaria, and now to Jerusalem. He had heard the teachings of love, the, the commands to follow, and the call to repentance. He had seen people's hearts melt and transform, like the woman at the well and Zacchaeus and the Roman centurion. He had seen the miracles of healing and and casting out the forces of darkness. And according to Matthew 10, 8, under the authority of Jesus, Judas had done the same. And yet now, in this moment, he throws it all away. He is aware that the religious establishment wants the Lord dead, and he decides to betray Jesus and give him over. Why? Perhaps he had become disillusioned with Jesus. The things Jesus kept alluding to didn't come about fast enough for Judas. He was impatient. Jesus seemed to be betraying a defeatist attitude, saying he's going to his death. 
John tells us that when Mary poured her perfume over Jesus, Judas was the most indignant at that act. In fact, John goes on to say in that same chapter that Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. It's clear that Judas loved money more than he loved Jesus or his fellow man, thereby demonstrating that he loved himself first and foremost. Nevertheless, despite his close proximity to Jesus, Judas did not heed the Lord's warning earlier from this gospel. Remember we read in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We are told that Judas sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. According to Exodus 21, 32, that was the exact price that was to be exchanged for a slave who had been accidentally gored to death by a bull. Judas gave up Jesus, the king of glory, in exchange for the value of a dead slave. But Judas was also unwittingly fulfilling prophecy found in Zechariah chapter 11. And just as verse 16 here reveals that he looked for an opportunity to betray Jesus, and he found it the following night, the same time when the rest of Jesus' disciples will also fulfill Zechariah 11, that the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered momentarily. In verse 47 of the same chapter, Judas will lead armed men to the garden at the time when he knew Jesus was alone and being intimate with his father in prayer. And he defiantly walks up to Jesus to kiss him so he might be identified by the mob in the darkness. And so we see the contrasting nature between these four scenes. Jesus is completely devoted to the Father's will. He becomes obedient even to the point of death. And by being devoted to the Father's plan, he is also devoted to his people. To those who trust him by faith, he will fulfill the sin debt owed to the Father. It will be paid in full at the cross. What love and devotion on display. And here's the application. Jesus is 100% devoted to the Father. He proves the Father's faithfulness as an example that we can follow in his steps. And in the same time, he is 100% devoted to his people. He will absorb the wrath of the Father on our behalf. And he does so willingly and not resentfully because he loves us. This is the most trustworthy individual that ever walked the earth. How could you refuse to follow someone that demonstrates such faithfulness and love? Every promise he makes is true. And then we see the religious establishment. They, of all people, should have known better, right? Yet instead of recognizing the Messiah, they're looking for ways to circumvent God's law. They felt threatened by Jesus' presence. They wanted a religion that was convenient and could be manipulated and used for their own purposes. They don't want to vote themselves to God exclusively. 
This is where we need to evaluate ourselves. Do we seek to please God? Or do we want God to do our bidding? Are we only religious enough to give the appearance of godliness, yet we are far away from him? Do we use our religiosity for our own purposes, perhaps to give us status within the church, perhaps to feel self-righteous in comparison to others? God continues to speak to us repeatedly in his word, and yet we just ignore him, just plowing away to do our own thing, thinking that we know how best to handle our circumstances. God is not fooled. He will not be mocked. He knows the true state of your heart. I plead with you, this is you, repent. Repent today. And then we have the example of Mary. This woman of complete devotion. Can you see Jesus for who he really is? That he should be the object of all you desire? That you are willing to sacrifice all for his sake? Even if it brings about the ridicule of those around you? Yes, there'll be those who don't understand why you do it, but that's okay. There is one, the only one whose opinion you should care about, who calls your acts of devotion and worship beautiful. He sees them as beautiful. And last, there is Judas. He serves as an example to us all that despite repeatedly hearing those calls to repent and occasionally doing good deeds in the name of the Lord, still reject his authority and refuse to submit to Jesus. Now, as we've seen, Judas was foretold in the Old Testament. His destiny was set. I'm often asked, could, could Judas have repented? Was it God's fault that Judas ended up in hell? I think I can say with sincerity that Judas acted completely within his nature. And God allowed him to follow through in his sin nature as a part of the judgment that's upon him. And if Judas ever had the inclination to repent, the Lord would have shown him mercy. But he didn't. In fact, we can see later in chapter 27 that Jesus, or Judas still acted according to his true nature. He felt guilty over what he wanted to do and, or what he had done. And so he went and tried to return the money to the priest in order to absolve himself. So he went to the chief priest for repentance. However, if Judas had truly understood who Jesus was, he would have made a beeline to Jesus' jail cell and begged for forgiveness. He would have put himself in the high priest's courtyard on his knees, confessing his sin, and followed Jesus all the way to the cross. That's not what he did. He just wanted to feel good about himself again. No, God allowed Judas to act according to his nature, to continue to give himself over to sin until he destroyed and condemned his own body. And that, folks, is the plight of all humanity. That is where each of us would be and how we would act unless the Lord intervened to save us and regenerate us and cause us to place our faith in Christ. So, dear friend, 
if you feel the tug of the Lord Jesus upon you, upon your heart, saying, submit, follow me, I would advise you to do so. And as you give yourself over to him, don't, don't worry about the ridicule you may receive or how others perceive it. They will say, well, that's just too high a price. You could have done something so much more with your life than give it to Jesus. But remember, Jesus calls every sacrifice of what is precious to you beautiful. The King of glory, the Lord of the universe, creator of all things, calls your act of worship in submission to him, beautiful. Will you become beautiful today? Then see Jesus as the object of true worth. Throw all of yourself before his feet and place your faith in what he did on your behalf at the cross. Let's pray. Lord, there is a a consistent theme that we see within these 16 verses. It is, what is our reaction to you? We thank you that our Lord Jesus responded to your perfect will perfectly, that he obeyed, that there was no sin in his life, and by doing so, he became the perfect sacrifice to be placed at the cross on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that he models that that when we are called to endure, when we are called to suffer for your sake, there is always victory on the other side. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus never lies, that he is always truthful to us. He tells us precisely what life should be like, and then he always follows through with his promises. And so, Lord, we thank you in how our Lord Jesus responded to you. Lord, we thank you in how Mary responded, that she did an act that might be compared as demeaning to a woman who did it previously to her, yet she wanted to show Jesus in this moment that she loved him with everything she had. And so, Lord, we pray we would respond the same way, And Lord, we look at the example of the religious establishment of Judas, how Judas became their instrument to create such a heinous sin. We pray, Lord, that we would not be like them who repeatedly heard you, heard your calls to repent, heard of your great love towards your people, and give this appearance of godliness, yet never truly submit to you. Lord, keep us from that. Instead, Lord, we pray that you would turn our attentions towards the cross and that you would help us to see our great need, that that unless you intervened, unless you enacted your plan of salvation by sending your son into the world to be the propitiation for us, that, Lord, we would have been like Judas, just still in our sin nature, acting according to our sin nature. But, Lord, you've shown us incredible love through the cross. Through the power of the cross, Lord, 
you have brought redemption into our lives. You have brought a way and a means for us to be reconciled to you. A once and for all event, Lord, holds true even to today, that your promise is secure, it is true, and that you still hold us. And so, Lord, allow us to look at the cross to to not only see the heinousness of our sin and what it cost us there, but the incredible love that was displayed in order to bring us to you. Let us stand in awe of that today. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.